Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 58, for the week ending June 23, 2017, the Declination Edition. We have several very interesting topics this week that Jay Rosen and I take a look at. The first is the first declination from the Jeff Sessions Justice Department, Lindy Gass. We consider the uh, trial of the son of the president of Equatorial Guinea for embezzlement of the country's funds. The trial is taking place in France. We take a look at the uh, SFO charges against four senior uh, former senior executives at Barclays Bank and Barclays, uh, criminal charges around funding issues for the bank in the 2008 financial crisis. We consider the uh, resignation of Uber CEO Travis Kalanick and uh, where the company is now. We consider compliance in the 21st century, where I welcome Comtech. Jay talks about the departure of Wei Chin and what it means uh, for the compliance community, what she's meant for the compliance community, and we tip the compliance hat to her. Jay previews his weekend report, and we also preview next week's release of the next episode of Everything Compliance. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. There we are. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and together with my cohort and co-host, Jay Rosen, we are back for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This week, we're on episode 58 for the week ending June 23rd, 2017, the Declination Edition. Uh, Jay, uh, welcome. Thanks, Tom. So we survived the uh, tropical storm here in Houston. It is uh, 98% humidity with 95-degree weather, so it's Houston at its summer most relevant. I am indoors and intend to stay indoors. Uh, well, we, we've been doing that uh, L.A. weather thing. Uh, this mor- The other morning when I was taking the girls to camp, uh, the car before it was turned on was 104 degrees. Ah, lovely. So... Uh, you know, but they say it's a dry heat, so. Yeah, yeah, it's a dry heat. I love it. Well, Jay, we had uh, some uh, interesting uh, news, events, and other this week, so maybe we can uh, kind of jump right into it. Uh, I think probably in the FCP wor- FCPA world, the biggest event this week was uh, actually happened last week, last Friday. The DOJ, in a very soft uh, landing, uh, announced uh, the first declination of the 2017 uh, FCPA year. Obviously, the first uh, declination out of the Trump administration, out of the uh, Sessions Department of Justice. It was posted on the DOJ declinations site. Um, We're going to link to the full declination on our show notes, and it involved a company called Lindy Gas. And uh, perhaps we can... um, uh, explore that case a little bit more at the end uh, uh, or towards the end of the podcast, but a lot of really interesting implications. I think uh, very significant for the compliance profession, the compliance practitioner, and obviously uh, anytime you have the first uh, FCPA case, uh, a lot of people are looking to uh, read the tea leaves. So from uh, your view over there on the West Coast, uh, what are your at least initial thoughts? Uh, it's about time. That was that was my initial thought, and I uh, I think it's more uh, interesting. Uh, later on, uh, we're going to record our everything compliance episode thirteen, and uh, the subject matter that I've chosen to s- discuss this week is the uh, lack of activity from the uh, 
DOJ thus far this year. So I, I don't know. I think it was kind of like, uh, I don't want to take complete credit for the declination, but I think because I chose to look into it this week, you know, I put the vibes out into the universe and we got our first declination. Uh, the other interesting thing that we'll probably uh, address at some point is that the uh, declination was signed off by Laura Par- Perkins on behalf of the DOJ. And then later that day, last Friday, she tendered her resignation and uh, she's uh, leaving to join uh, her colleague, Kevin Abakoff over at Hughes, Hubbard and Reed. So uh, once again, we see more um, departures from the DOJ. Right. Uh, we had a in the greater anti-corruption world, Jay, we had a really interesting development begin this week, and that's the um, the trial, criminal trial in France of the son of Equatorial Guinea's president uh, who went on trial. Uh, he is known as Teddy Obaang, and he's the second president of Equatorial Guinea. He uh, allegedly uh, looted some, um, well, I don't even know how much he's alleged to have looted, but he's alleged to have spent $225 million of the country's money abroad. I guess it's that amount. And two-thirds of that was uh, spent in France. So he had been previously been the subject of a kleptocracy asset recovery initiative here in the United States uh, for about $70 million in property. The DOJ settled for uh, $30 million. And uh, he is most famous, famously known for having purchased the uh, Michael Jackson glove. And uh, so Dick Casson wrote about the trial. And then uh, – uh, for those who really want to go into it a little more deeply, though, over on the Global Anti-Corruption blog, uh, we have a report uh, of the first day of the trial from Shirley Poget, a French lawyer who's observing the proceedings, and apparently she's going to publish uh, an ongoing uh, running account of the trial. And I just wanted to highlight some of the uh, first day's uh, uh, interesting points. Basically, the defendant, um, Mr. Obiang, really does not want to go to trial, and uh, first he asked to stay the court pending a, a final resolution from the International Court of Justice that he could even be tried in France. Uh, then he objected to the illegality of the uh, decision by the French magistrate to take him to trial. Uh, he objected to the legality of the order to remand him to trial, and he um, said that uh, the they, then they attacked the procedural aspects of the what you and I would call the complaint um, as not being sufficient. So he's apparently doing everything he can to avoid going to trial. Um, Equatorial Guinea is recognized as one of the most corrupt countries on earth. And so it's, uh, it's really, I think, a positive sign to see multiple anti-corruption tools being used across the globe to, uh, to really fight the global scourge of uh, bribery and corruption. Yeah, and that's, uh, you know, I guess one of the uh, stated goals of this uh, administration to start going after more individual enforcement. So this seems to be uh, a case that is uh, right up their alley. So um, next we had over in the United Kingdom, a um, not a in a corruption case, at least not yet. But we have a serious fraud office charge Barclays Bank. He's just having a terrible year, PR-wise, uh, certainly around cultural issues. Um, but the Barclays Bank and four former senior executives 
criminally around funding issues in the 2008 financial crisis. And they relate to funds that were secured by the bank from the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund. And what uh, the issue is, Jay, is there were two tranches of money and uh, which uh, Qatar invested in Barclays. And for the first tranche in June of 2008, Qatari, uh, it's unclear who in the Qatari government or if it was simply the Qatari government, received a consulting contract to the tune of $406 million dollars to, uh, in exchange to, for helping develop Barclays services in the region. Uh, what makes this a little um, problematic is apparently there were never any services done. Uh, this action was never taken. And um, it's uh, if this was a FCPA case, it would be a huge red flag. But even bigger or more importantly, in October, a second tranche was made of um, three point excuse me, $9.21 billion Qatari invested in the bank. And in a, at the same time or contemporaneously with this loan, um, Barclays Bank loaned to the Qataris $2.9 billion. And so the question is, was this a quid pro quo or was the bank simply loaning Qatar the money to reinvest? So the entire arrangement certainly smells funny. And the um, total amount um, given by given by uh, Barclays has raised certain red flags. But under UK law, the bank was required to disclose both of these. And while the existence of the original consulting agreement was disclosed back in June, the uh, second uh, the loan back to Qatar was not uh, disclosed. And that's what the criminal prosecution's on. In a very interesting article today in the Financial Times, they uh, the newspaper wondered aloud that if uh, DPAs had been enforced around uh, earlier in the UK, whether the bank would have uh, been able to get a DPA out of this. But apparently this was before the British uh, enacted DPAs, and uh, so there was not available to them. And then uh, the serious fraud office moved to uh, criminally charge uh, the bank and its former CEO and three top executives. And this, as you might guess, in UK banking systems is, uh, I don't want to say a nuclear bomb, but it's about as big a conventional explosion as you can have. And uh, to have really the top people in the, what they call the city in London criminally charged, uh, particularly around the financial crisis, really turned a lot of heads and frankly may have uh, secured the uh, serious fraud office as an independent office for for quite some time. So this is, I think, a, a major development, whether there was a quid pro quo or any type of uh, anti-corruption type conduct is unknown at this point. I suppose if if it had been, Jay, the uh, the SFO would have would have brought that charge as well. But nobody's going to come out looking good in this uh, period. Uh, if Barclays goes to trial or these gentlemen go to trial, they're going to have to answer some very difficult and troubling questions. Having said that, I'm sure they will have the best barristers that money can buy defending them. So uh, it'll be a big uh, a big battle royale by the uh, serious fraud office against Barclays and the four individuals. Now, is, does this mean there's going to be a lot of white powdered wigs going on with this thing? A lot of white powdered wigs. A lot of white powdered wigs. So, so um, what was I going to say? Uh, didn't the SFO hint that there were two major uh, um two major cases coming down the pipe 
besides this one? They did, uh, and uh, we, I don't have a, a hint of what that other case might be. Yeah, but I, I totally agree with the way you're reading at it that uh, this might just uh, secure the SFO's independence going forward. So it's a uh, lot, lot of interesting stuff to watch uh, going forward on this matter. Uh, I know there's uh, another case that we're going to talk about now that you've uh, blogged about twice this week. And I believe, did, did you and Matt Kelly speak about Uber at all on one of your podcasts? We did. Uh, actually, Matt's segment for Everything Compliance uh, deals with Uber. And as he said, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. So, so, well, so this week, so well, uh, it's almost almost like the Trump administration. You have to have a kind of a day-by-day scorecard to keep up with everything. Um, and the most recent developments were on Tuesday – the uh, formerly embattled CEO uh, of Uber, Travis Kalanick, resigned. Uh, that's why he's former. Yesterday, there was apparently a uh, rump revolt at corporate headquarters where um, some small percentage of the employees uh, signed a petition to bring him back. The company is currently CEO-less, COO-less, CFO-less, GC-less, CCO-less, uh, and really, there's a complete dearth of senior management there. Uh, they have got to get some uh, very competent, very high-powered people uh, in there uh, as soon as they can. Um, but this, uh, you know, a number of people, uh, 1,000 out of 15,000 corporate employees, signed a petition to bring Kalanick back. And if that doesn't speak to uh, a systemic cultural problem inside the organization, uh, I don't know what does. And they're going to have a huge challenge uh, going forward. This is uh, not simply uh, uh, it's more than a rotten head at the top, Jay. I think it uh, systemically the uh, the corporation has some huge cultural values to change, some huge cultural issues to overcome. And um, at a $70 billion valuation, you wonder, really, are they going to be able to sustain this? And are the private equity owners who demanded Kalanick's resignation – going to be able to get a, a management and leadership team in who can turn this thing around. It's, it's, it's not pretty at all. And, uh, you know, from my old investment banking days, I would say that the valuation here at Uber is just going to be a falling knife. And what the VCs want to do is they, they need to get people in there to immediately prop this place up because that valuation is looking extremely rich right now. And with the, the drain at the top, 20 top execs who have left in the last six months and plus Kalanick not being there, um, you know, who are you going to bring in there that can immediately uh, bring some legitimacy to the operations? And I believe earlier this week in three separate states, uh, Uber drivers are now uh, entitled to collect tips and they're trying to improve the experience for the drivers and they're going to be rolling those changes out uh, throughout the year. But um, I think they, they have a real long way to go. So I had a, a couple of observations I wanted to share with you, Jay. Um, and, and really one to your former um, uh, private equity hat. Uh, the, uh, the business columnist in my local paper, the Houston Chronicles, a fellow named Chris Tomlinson, and he wrote an article yesterday that said Uber is basically bleeding money losing money. And the only way it's being kept afloat is the uh, investors who are pumping money into it. And that's why the valuation is so high. Uh, they are not making money. 
It's burning cash. Uh, now, they are, of course, betting on the future, whether that future is driverless cars or some other more short-term future. Um, but if the funders uh, don't put more money in, uh, Uber's going to run out of cash. So that, I found that very interesting. That's the first time I'd really heard it put that way. The second thing is, Jay, in my corporate experience, the corporate office are usually the adults, and there are policies and procedures in place. Things move a little bit slower at the corporate office. That's where the bureaucracy is. And when you have problems, they tend to be out in the field because that's where the cowboys are, whether you know it's the sales guys or if you've got a business unit that's uh, full of cowboys, um, it's Let's Rodeo. But here, the field people are the ones on the straight and narrow. And it's the corporate office that held all the cowboys. And so that's a really interesting dynamic change. And if uh, I'm a huge fan of the service of Uber, the uh, ride uh, hailing app part of it. I like the ease. I like the, the ride experience. I like interacting with the driver. Um, I find the entire experience positive from the customer perspective. And I, and I talk to every driver uh, that I get in the car with. And uh, most uh, I would say about 60, 70% of them, it's a very positive experience. Some are, uh, the, uh, when I ask them about it, it's simply, yeah, it's a job. Um, and I get that too. Uh, but it's odd that, or it's unusual for the field, the customer-facing component, to be the group that's really in compliance. And I was really struck by Leona Lewis, who on a podcast early this week said that what Uber is selling to the customer, i.e. you and me, is trust and safety. Trust that uh, we will uh, be safe in those cars that we're getting in that we don't know anything about. Trust uh, the same with if we do a, a ride share and uh, trust that, that we're going to be delivered to our location safely. If that trust is eroded, um, then customers, consumers will, wa- uh, will vote with their feet. And so now they're changing up the customer Consumer relation, customer driver relationship, and the experience, and uh, who knows where that goes. But I found it really interesting that um, uh, usually it's the corporate office that's the adults in the room, and here it was the corporate office that was the kiddos it, uh, who were wreaking havoc in the fraternity house. And then the third thing is Jay that um, think about how all this started: a blog post, one blog post. Uh, the um, older report said that based upon the blog post of Susan Fowler, we were commissioned to do this report uh, on the introduction. So uh, the power of social media, the power of outlets that you would not consider uh, really as uh, something that required a crisis management like Walmart after um, the New York Times broke the story in uh, April 2012 about uh bribes uh, and corruption in Mexico, or you name the scandal that's uh, broken on the front page of uh, the Wall Street Journal, here it's a blog post. And when do you bring <coughs> crisis management teams in? Uh, typically, you don't do so after one blog post. But it, it's almost like that one blog post was was Susan Fowler being a whistleblower, that she tried to go through the proper channels and the channels uh, either didn't work or didn't exist. So that goes back again to just how, how ethically a mess the company was. So there was really almost no time to react. And it's interesting that the 
internet gave rise to Uber, right? That this is a way that we could use technology and you could safely know who your driver is. And then ultimately this one tweet or this one uh, email that you're talking about, that that could be the thing that brings it down. So um, the uh, yes. Now, uh, obviously, if the company hadn't had a corrupt or uh, uh, toxic culture to start with, it wouldn't have been one blog post that brought it down. But really, that that's all it took. So um, if you're in the corporate world, you need to think about uh, looking at things uh, perhaps a little bit differently than uh, you would have before. Um, Jay, next up is a um, article I wrote for Compliance Week, and of course, we'll link to it in the show notes. And where I see compliance going is a place I think you've actually been, which is uh, tech. And I've called it ComTech uh, based on uh, law tech. But what I see is many of the uh, examples of um, or uh, um, services and products that were brought to the law industry, the legal profession, such as uh, document search tools, such as translation tools, um, are now available for uh, the compliance professional and the compliance practitioner. And obviously, in your former hat as uh, Mr. Translations, you brought ComTech uh, to the translations world. But I really see this as, as much broader now um, into things like uh, AML, um, where uh, data analysis is being used. Uh, to determine suspicious payments. Uh, you can bring that over to third parties. Uh, you use, um, in the M&A context, uh, such reviews around uh, third-party representatives or of potential targets, and just a wide variety of tech tools, maybe even leading to uh, artificial intelligence. So I find this to be a very exciting development. It really can mean uh, some much greater efficiencies for the for a company and uh, I worked or I did a, another recorded another podcast today with uh, some folks at Dun and Bradstreet who've got just a fabulous new tool on um, uh, uh, beneficial owners and investing with them what I thought was going to be kind of a regulatory response along the lines of know your third parties um, it really moved to a business process to allow the company to um, um, do business more efficiently. So uh, as I said in that podcast, if, if you can take a tool that was designed to deal with a legal problem and it actually improves your business process so that your company is more efficient and at the end of the day more profitable, that's where compliance is going to begin to catch people's uh, attention going forward. So uh, ComTech, I think, is going to be something that uh, you and I are both writing, thinking, and talking about a lot going forward. Uh, shall we talk about uh, another departure now? Uh, <laughs> what's up on the list? Yes, we should. Why don't you tell us about it? So um, it was announced earlier this week that uh, Wei Chen, um, who was the uh, compliance uh, expert at the DOJ, uh, was asked to uh, terminate her contract early. And today is her last day at the DOJ. And um, what's been noted by our colleague Matt Kelly and people who either follow away on uh, Twitter 
or on LinkedIn. She's been very uh, socially active for the last six weeks or so. And I, I think, um, you know, what you're going to tell us, Tom, is that it's going to be leaving a, a big gaping hole at, hole at DOJ that she brought a lot to the practice of compliance and uh, she, she will be sorely missed going forward. Well, I would certainly agree that um, she will be missed, but uh, the Department of Justice is actively seeking uh, a replacement, either a permanent employee or uh, another contractor. So they're moving to uh, to fill that position. And um, I think she has really been a great boon to the compliance profession and the compliance practitioner. She has uh, really bought, brought the role of the CCO uh more than simply running compliance inside of a corporation. But if a company gets under investigation, the CCO is part of the solution with the Department of Justice. And um, she may have many lasting legacies, and that may be one of her lasting legacies. But uh, uh, the compliance profession, I really think, owes the tip of, a cap to her, tip of our compliance cap to her. And uh, I wish her well on uh, wherever she may be um, heading out. And uh, she has some uh, pretty interesting tweets uh, this week, if you care to check her out on her uh, Twitter account. So uh, really interesting. Any, any thoughts where you think she may land? Or are there any uh, jobs you'd like to nominate her for, maybe, in Silicon Valley or anything? <laughs> well, she would certainly be a, a very uh, good hire for Uber uh, right out of the box. I don't know if that would... Uh, um, uh, really work in Silicon Valley, but she is credentialed well to, uh, to take that position. And, and maybe the, uh, Mary, uh, maybe Ariana Harrington would, uh, put a call into her, but uh, wherever she ends up, I hope, uh, she continues to, uh, communicate to the compliance community. Uh, we've got a lot, uh, we can learn uh, from her and, uh, with her together. Well, we, we wish her well. And, um, Last week, as some of your, our listeners know, my daughters, uh, Millie and Michaela, uh, did the intro and the, um, the outro. And Tom, they wanted to find out what their ratings were. Do you have any information I can share with them? Well, um, why don't you preview our, uh, your weekend report, and I will uh, see if I can uh, pull those up. Thanks. So, um, I uh, took last weekend off and celebrated Father's Day, so I'm going to now go back to what I said I was going to do last weekend and um, continue the discussion I'm having about how compliance can be a competitive advantage. Uh, last week, we looked about how uh, the community can get together and uh, build the barn using that uh, visual metaphor from Witness, and this week, uh, to continue talking about the farm uh, we're going to talk about the silos and uh, kind of like Tom spoke about before with ComTech, you know, what are the different options and how can you share information across silos within an organization to, number one, improve communication, but to allow that information to be used in a proactive way to uh, use compliance as a competitive advantage. So that will be my uh, weekend read that we'll post sometime this weekend. And uh, I'm still uh, putting the numbers together, so why don't you uh, tell the audience, give them a little sneak peek on uh, Everything Compliance, Episode 13, which will come, go up next Thursday. Sure. So um, topics will include uh, Matt Kelly, as we've previously referenced. He's going to talk about 
Uber and policies and procedures. Uh, Jonathan Armstrong, our colleague uh, from the UK, will be talking about fake news and specifically around GDPR. And uh, I'm going to be talking about, uh, as I said earlier, the lack of uh, activity and um, declinations from the DOJ. And we will uh, actually have that one one that one um, topic that we discussed already, which was Linda. And uh, as usual, most of us of the commentators will wrap up with their uh one minute rant. So that's what we have to look forward to next week on Everything Compliance, episode 13. Okay, Jay, I've looked at the numbers and it looks like uh, episode 57 uh, that the girls introduced last week is at about 4,800 um, views and downloads. Okay. Yeah. So they were concerned because they they thought they thought five thousand was the number they needed to hit. So uh, if any about any of you out there want to go get back and listen again just to help Millie and Michaela out, we totally appreciate it. Okay. Well, well, they should be able to hit that uh, that number. There's always people who uh, who wrap up a little uh, week later. So so uh, tell them that uh, it's looking strong. Uh, they uh, they were really a big hit. Uh, the, the folks at JD Super emailed me specifically uh, to uh, talk about the uh, the new intro team and wondered uh, you know how we were able to get such a such a team for uh, for that episode and would they return so you know perhaps uh, you could put me in touch with their agent and uh, we could uh, perhaps negotiate a summer rate. Well, M- Mrs. Monitor is coming back from a business trip, so I'll uh, make sure that the two of you speak. Um, any information about uh, any conferences in the next couple of weeks, or uh, how's your book doing? Um, book sales are strong. Uh, in conferences, the uh, the next conference I'm involved with is in uh, July, where here in Houston at the Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable, we are having our uh, summer event for members on Thursday, June 13th. We have a, a day-long session. Um, uh, if you are a Gerber member, I would urge you to attend because we have uh, uh, Everything Compliance uh, Roundtable members, Jonathan Armstrong, coming in from London to speak. We have Matt Kelly coming in from Boston to speak. So some really great speakers on that. Uh, Jay, as you know, most uh, the summer season is, is a little bit slow for conferences. So uh, right now, that's uh, it for me. But um, uh, I'm going to have some exciting news about a new podcast I'm developing. So, uh, you know, perhaps uh, I can talk about that uh, next week. So, uh, Jay, with that, uh, you want to take us home? Yeah. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending the last few minutes with us as we took a, t- as we took a look at the FCPA week that was for the week ending Friday, June 23rd, 2017. Have a great weekend, everybody. This is Tom Fox again, and now we have a sneak peek of Everything Compliance, Episode 13 with Matt Kelly's rant. So, Matt Kelly, do you have a rant for us uh, this week? I always have a rant, Tom. Um, Yes, I do. Uh, So today I want to rant a little bit about the Lindy enforcement action, which came down, I think, the third week of June, um, where the Justice Department declined to prosecute Lindy, which is an overseas chemicals company that stumbled into some FCPA trouble. 
This is the first FCPA enforcement action we've seen under the Trump administration, which actually, you know, there's not a whole lot of rant about the decision itself. Lindy came clean, obeyed the tenets of the pilot program, and then therefore had to disgorge its profits and pay a few other small um, small amount of dollars, really. That's what we're talking about. It did not get a DPA. It did not get a monitor. It got a declination. Everybody wins. Where my rant is, is about the idea that perhaps Lindy didn't need to report this conduct at all, which was done as part of an acquisition that happened 10 years ago and was the statute of limitations applying or not. And you know, very tenuous uh, grip on Lindy itself that, you know, did it need to report. There are arguments out there that maybe it didn't need to report. I'm going to rant against the idea that, you know, the Justice Department is probably never going to find out. They're probably not going to have a case. So therefore, let's not report this. That is a bad idea. That is a bad habit compliance officers should not get into. My rant is that if your view of FCPA compliance is just that, you know, what does the letter of the law say we can get away with? What is the real risk-benefit analysis of disclosure? Is it odds are we'd wind up with huge remediation fees and still get a declination? Let's let's just assume we're going to get a declination and not bother with the remediation or not bother coming clean. Terrible. It ignores the ethics part of ethics and compliance. Um, and I think that's really one big part of why you should disclose is because people see it. People see that you are therefore putting good values over what the letter of the law will get you let you get away with. And that's good. Employees see it, business partners see it, the regulators will see it because you might wind up in front of them in the future. And if they find out you knew about something before and you didn't report it, and now you're in front of them on a different matter and they hear about the first thing that you never came clean on, you're not going to be in a good situation. I just I'm very hard pressed to see any good upside to not disclosing because the Justice Department probably won't find out about it. I just don't think that's worth it from a legal standpoint. It is certainly not worth it from an ethics and compliance standpoint. If you just believe that compliance is not about ethics, it's just about what the letter of the law will get let you get away with, I guess you're in a coherent moral framework, but you're not in one that I think is based on what ethics and compliance is about. I could probably rant for an hour on this subject. I won't, I promise. But that, that's my, been my rant today. It's just about the some of the chatter you hear about the Lindy declination, which overall was a good outcome. This is Tom Fox again. As you can tell from Matt's rant, the Everything Compliance episode 13 will be its usual sterling quality. I hope you can join us next week and we'll post on Thursday. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help get the word out about the only weekly compliance and ethics related podcast which summarize the week's events. Also, if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com and Jay Rosen at Rosen at Affiliated Monitors. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA, and I hope you'll join us next week where we consider the TOPS FCPA Compliance and Ethics Stories of the Week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.